This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Hi, and a very good afternoon to you. It's wonderful to be with you. Great to be in the seat here talking to you. It's two minute, 10 minutes past two on a Wednesday afternoon, of course, as you heard, Judaism 101.9, talking about upcoming events, talking about things that we need to bear in mind for this coming week, as we often do, and uh, to put them into a Judaism 101.9 perspective. So, first up, let's talk about tonight and tomorrow. Believe it or not, tonight and tomorrow are very, very significant dates Certainly in the Hasidic calendar and, of course, predominantly in the Chabad Hasidic calendar. But if we think about it, they actually have a great, great bearing on all of us. Um, Not just if you're a Chabadnik, if you're a Lubavitcher, if you're a card-carrying member, but um, actually in effect, in fact, for all of us as Jews. Because there was a very, very momentous event that happened some years ago. On this particular date, which we'll talk about in a moment, and it had a bearing, in fact, on what Judaism looks like today. If we think about Judaism today, if we think about um, the uh, ideas of Judaism around the world and what Judaism represents today, I think that without being um, too sort of um, self-praising um, in terms of the particular philosophy that um, I follow um, and uh, try to live up to, I think that I am correct in saying that the influence of Chabad and of Hasidim and Hasidism around the world has uh, possibly and probably been the very reason why there is a strong and powerful Judaism that uh, pumps through the veins of the Jewish people around the world, um, be it um, for the fact that there are Chabad houses, Chabad houses around the world that people can visit, be it for the fact that there are schools and yeshivas and uh, so on, and of course, be it for the fact that there is a very strong, and there has been a very strong return to Judaism, the Balchuva movement, that um, has literally taken the Jewish world by storm over the past 40, 50 years or so. And of course, uh, main driver, of course, main instigator and uh, main supplier to that particular growth within the Jewish people has been Hasidism and Chabad. So, um, forgive me for paying homage to uh, us ourselves, um, not necessarily to us personally, but of course to the philosophy and the brand of Hasidism that um, I happen to support and be a part of. But on this particular day, um, in fact, the whole story began. Because if we think about what happened on this day, um, perhaps it has a tremendous, tremendous bearing on us all, and perhaps it warrants a great and uh, proper explanation. So, we all know, if we are following our Jewish calendar, that today is the 18th day of Kislev. Tonight, of course, will become the 19th, and tomorrow, being the 19th day of Kislev, well, there are those who would say, well, that's simply six days before Hanukkah. Um, But let's think a little bit more about it. It was on this date in the year 1798 that the founder of Chabad Hasidism, whose name was Rabbi Shnir Zalman of Liadi, who lived from 1745 to 1812, that he was freed from his imprisonment in the Tsarist Russian prison. Now, what happened 
in order to get him there and what is so important about his liberation that he was released from that imprisonment and this day then is marked in fact called by Hasidim around the world as the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidism. It is the Rosh Hashanah. What happened on Rosh Hashanah? Well, if you think about it, on Rosh Hashanah, we celebrate each year the birthday of man. Birthday of the world, we believe, was in the build-up, the five days that preceded that. And then Rosh Hashanah is the birthday of Adam, the birthday of man. What is significant about celebrating man's birthday on Rosh Hashanah is because man entered into a great partnership with God. And on that day, this was the birth of their relationship and the birth of this flush, flourishing relationship to perfect the world, to pick up the world, to put into this world um, all the uh, beautiful things that only man could help God to do, to instigate it and to instigate and to complete. And something similar happened from a Hasidic point of view on the 19th of Kislev in 1798. Now, <clears throat> In fact, if we look at the background to the teachings of Hasidism, it had actually begun two whole generations before that. And the real founder of the Hasidic movement ultimately was Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov. Now, he lived from 1698 to 1760, and he actually revealed to his disciples um, things that he had gleaned from mystical the mystical soul of Torah that had previously only been available to the Kabbalists. He was also confronted with the fact that um, Judaism was becoming more and more exclusive, um, exclusive because it was all about uh, learning um, how much one had accumulated anew in uh, Talmudic knowledge and so on, and everybody else was being left by the wayside and completely, basically ignored. Um, delving deeply into the uh, mystical side of Torah, the Baal Shem Tov began um, working on releasing, revealing, and bringing about a study with his students to um, um, uplift with the Torah study that was known up until then and uplift the Jewish people at the same time. Um, his follower, his disciple, who was known as Rabbi Dovber, who became known as the Magid of Mizrich, um, <clears throat> actually um, was also connected with the date of the 19th Kislev because 26 years before Rabbi Shneer Zalman's release from prison, um, the Magid had returned his soul to his maker. It was his yard site, the 19th of Kislev. And before his his passing, he had said, um, the, this day is our Yom Tov. This day is our festival. And so Rabbi Shneer Zalman actually went a tremendous amount further because he had brought the great depth of learning and the great depth of Talmudic and halachic study to, um, to, to, to bear, and he brought this about bringing his teachings to the broader segments of the uh, Jewish population of Eastern Europe. He founded, in fact, what was known as the Chabad approach, the approach which is a philosophy based on a system of study, meditation, 
character refinement that took the abstract concepts that seemed to be too far and too spiritual and too mystical to the average man. He brought them into a rational, comprehensible, and practically applicable um, way of life. And he wanted to institute this and encourage it through what he called Chabad, the Chochmah, the Bina, the Da'at, the system of um, the flash of wisdom, the elucidation, <coughs> extrapolation, and then finally the absolute understanding and application of everything that has been studied and that has been learnt, bringing about character refinement, bringing about um, a deep system of meditation, a deep system of studying things, not just in a surface value and not just because it is a way of telling us what we have to do and what we need to do at a certain time, but rather to look for the inner, um, hidden, mystical, deeper soul of everything that we actually do. Now, it was in the autumn months of 1798 that Rabbi Schneer Zalman, unfortunately, was arrested on charges that his teachings and his activities were threatening the authority of the Tsar, believe it or not. And he was imprisoned in an island fortress on the Neva River, N-E-V-A, Neva River in Petersburg. And he was compelled during his interrogations to present to the Tsar's ministers and counselors um, many of the basic tenets of Judaism and to explain various things in Hasidic philosophy and in practice. And in fact, he was held for 53 days, 53 whole days after which he was exonerated. Now, the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shneel Zalman, taught that nothing that happens here in this world happens without a counterpart, without something bigger and more spiritual happening um, up above. And he therefore felt that because there was an imprisonment down here, that in fact there was something about an imprisonment and a release from that imprisonment that happened on the 19th of Kislev up above in Shamayim. And therefore... Um, it became the date that marked his real um, uh, publicity and his real pushing forth of the secrets of Chabad Hasidic philosophy um, a, in a way whereby he made them palatable, applicable, understandable by each and every student everywhere and on every level. And this was something that the Alter Rebbe finally actually put into uh, um, in, 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 a, in, a, in a very, very um, uh, dynamic way, put into his real code and real uh, manual for the soul, which is otherwise known as the Tanya. And this all happened, the revelation the coming out of uh, of imprisonment and this great um, spiritual explosion of um, beautiful, beautiful, deep um, spiritual meditation, understanding, knowledge, and application thereof to uh, raising the character of the entire Jewish people. It all happened, it all began on Yudtet Kislev, on the 19th of Kislev, all those years ago. And so... A day called the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidus. It's the day on which Hasidic philosophy was actually born. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Hi, welcome back. I thought for something a little bit different today, I would like to read you a story. And the story is actually a brief story of Hanukkah. I'm not sure if everybody really knows every detail 
about the actual build-up and the actual Hanukkah story. Yes, we all know the final outcome. We all know about the Maccabees, I suppose. We all know about the oil that lasted uh, when it wasn't supposed to last for even one day that ended up lasting for eight. We all know about those miracles. And we all know that from Tuesday night next week, we begin lighting our Hanukkah. We begin lighting our menorah. Um, and we do that for eight nights, each night increasing by one. We'll talk a little bit more about the actual practicalities of that a little bit later. But perhaps let's just read through the story of Hanukkah. And I've taken it from a beautiful book that is a well-known old book called The Complete Story of Hanukkah by Dr. Nissen Mandel. And it goes as follows. It says, that more than 2,000 years ago, there was a time when the land of Israel was part of the Syrian Greek Empire, dominated by Syrian rulers of the dynasty of the Seleucids. In order to relate the story that led up to Hanukkah, we will start with Antiochus III, the king of Syria, who reigned from 3538 to 3574, which is 222 to 186 before the Common Era. He had waged war with King Ptolemy of Egypt over the possession of the land of Israel. Antiochus III was victorious, and the land of Israel was annexed to his empire. At the beginning of his reign, he was favorably disposed towards the Jews and accorded them some privileges. Later on, however, when he was beaten by the Romans and compelled to pay heavy taxes, the burden fell upon the various peoples of his empire who were forced to furnish the heavy gold that was required of him by the Romans. When Antiochus died, his son Seleucus IV took over and further oppressed the Jews. Added to the troubles from the outside were the grave perils that threatened Judaism from within. The influence of the Hellenists, and that is people who accepted idol worship and the Syrian way of life, was increasing. Yohanan, the high priest, foresaw the danger to Judaism from the penetration of Syrian Greek influence into the Holy Land. For in contrast to the ideal of outward beauty held by the Greeks and Syrians, Judaism, Judaism of course, emphasizes truth and moral purity as commanded by God in the Holy Torah. The Jewish people could never give up their faith in God and accept the idol worship of the Syrians. Yochanan was therefore opposed to any attempt on the part of the Jewish Hellenists to introduce Greek and Syrian customs into the land. The Hellenists hated him. One of them told the king's commissioner that in the treasury of the temple there was a great deal of wealth. The wealth in the treasury consisted of the contributions of the half-shekel made by all adult Jews annually. That was given for the purpose of the sacrifices on the altar, as well as for the fixing and improving of the temple building. Another part of the treasury consisted of orphans' funds, which were deposited for them until they became of age. Seleucus needed money in order to pay the Romans. He sent his minister, whose name was Heliodros, to take the money from the treasury of the temple. In vain did Yohanan, the high priest, beg him not to do it. Heliodos did not listen, entered the gate of the temple, but suddenly he became pale with fright. The next moment he fainted and fell to the ground. After Heliodros came to, he did not dare to enter again. Short time later, Seleucus was killed and his brother Antiochus IV, the fourth, began to reign over Syria and that was in 3586 or 174 before the Common Era. He was a tyrant of a rash and impetuous nature, contemptuous of religion, of the feelings of others. He was called Epiphanes, 
meaning the God's beloved. Several of the Syrian rulers received similar titles, but a historian of his time, whose name was Polybius, gave him the epithet Epimanus, meaning madman, a title more suitable to the character of this harsh and cruel king. Desiring to unify his kingdom through the medium of a common religion and culture, Antiochus tried to root out the individualism of the Jews by suppressing all the Jewish laws. He removed the righteous high priest Yochanan from the temple in Jerusalem, and in his place he installed Yochanan's brother, Yoshua, who loved to call himself by the Greek name of Jason. For he was a member of the Hellenist party, and he used his high office to spread more and more of the Greek customs amongst the priesthood. Joshua, or Jason, was later replaced by another man, whose name was Menelaus, who had promised the king that he would bring in more money than Jason did. When Yochanan, the former high priest, protested against the spread of the Hellenists' influence in the Holy Temple, the ruling high priest hired murderers to assassinate him. Antiochus was at that time engaged in a successful war against Egypt. But messengers from Rome arrived and commanded him to stop the war, and he had to yield. And meanwhile, in Jerusalem, a rumor spread that a serious incident had befallen Antiochus. Thinking that he was dead, the people rebelled against Menelaus. The treacherous high priest, high priest rather, fled together with his friends. Antiochus returned from Egypt enraged by Roman interference with his ambitions. When he heard what had taken place in Jerusalem, he ordered his army to fall upon the Jews, and thousands of Jews were killed. Antiochus then enacted a series of harsh decrees against the Jews. Worship, Jewish worship, was forbidden. Scrolls of the law were confiscated and burnt. Shabbos rest, circumcision, and the dietary laws were prohibited under penalty of death. Even one of the respected elders of the generation, Rabbi Eliezer, a man of 90, was ordered by the servants of Antiochus to eat pork so that others would do the same. When he refused, they suggested to him that he pick up the meat to his lips to appear to be eating. But Rabbi Eliezer refused to do even that and was promptly put to death. There were thousands of others who likewise sacrificed their lives. The famous story of Hannah and her seven children happened at that time. Antiochus's men went from town to town and from village to village to force the inhabitants to worship pagan gods. Only one refuge area remained, and that was the hills of Judea with their caves. But even there did the Syrians pursue the faithful Jews, and many a Jew died a martyr's death. One day the henchmen of Antiochus arrived in the village of Modi'in, where Matisyahu, the old priest, lived. The Syrian officer built an altar in the marketplace of the village and demanded that Matisyahu offered sacrifices to the Greek gods. Matisyahu replied, I, my sons, and my brothers are determined to remain loyal to the covenant which our God made with our ancestors. Thereupon, a Hellenistic Jew approached the altar to offer a sacrifice. Matisyahu grabbed his sword and killed him, and his sons and friends fell upon the Syrian officers and men. They killed many of them and chased the rest away. They then destroyed the altar. Matisyahu knew that Antiochus would be enraged when he heard what had happened. He would certainly send an expedition to punish him and his followers. So Matisyahu, therefore, left the village of Morian and fled, together with his sons and friends, to the hills of Judea. 
All loyal and courageous Jews joined them. They formed legions, and from time to time they left their hiding places to fall upon enemy detachments and outposts and to destroy the pagan altars that were built by the order of Antiochus. Before his death, Matisyahu called his sons together and urged them to continue to fight in defense of God's Torah. He asked them to follow the counsel of their brother Shimon the Wise. In waging warfare, he said, the leader should be Yehuda the Strong, Judah. Yehuda was called Maccabee, a word that is composed of the initial letters of the four Hebrew words, Mi kamocha ba'elim Hashem, who is like you, O God. That's where the word Maccabee comes from. Antiochus sent his general Apollonius to wipe out Judah and his followers, the Maccabees. Though greater in number and equipment than their adversaries, the Syrians were defeated by the Maccabees. Antiochus sent out another expedition, which was also defeated. He realized that only by sending a powerful army could he, cope, could he hope rather, to defeat Yehuda and his brave fighting men. An army consisting of more than 40,000 men swept the land under the leadership of two commanders, Nicanor and Gorgiash. When uh, Yehuda and his brothers heard of that, they exclaimed, Let us fight unto death in defense of our souls and our holy temple. The people assembled in Mitzpah, where Shmuel, the prophet of old, had offered prayers to God. And after a series of battles, the war was won. Now the Maccabees returned to Jerusalem to Jerusalem to liberate it. They entered the temple and cleared it of the idols placed there by the Syrian vandals. Yehuda and his followers built a new altar, which he dedicated on the 25th of the month of Kislev. Yes, the 25th of the month of Kislev. The rededication took place in the year 3622 or 139 before the Common Era. Of course, Hanukkah is celebrated on the 25th of Kislev. Since the golden menorah had been stolen by the Syrians, the Maccabees now made one out of a cheaper metal. When they wanted to light it, however, they found only a small cruise of pure olive oil bearing the seal of the high priest Yochanan. It was sufficient to light only for one day. By a miracle of God, it continued to burn for eight days till new oil was made available. That miracle proved to them certainly and to us that God had again taken his people under his protection. In memory of this, our sages appointed these eight days for annual thanksgiving and for lighting candles. The brightness of the first Hanukkah light had dwindled down, but the holy fires on the altar burnt again in the Beit HaMikdash from morning to morning as prescribed by the law. The priests were again busily officiating in the old customary ways, and day in, day out, they prepared the offerings. Order and peace seemed established. The Jewish farmer longed to return to his land after two years of hardship, privation, and danger in the victorious Jewish army. It was high time to break the ground and till the soil if the barley was to grow and ripen in time for the Omer offering on Pesach. The Jewish farmers had left their plows to rally about the heroic Chashmonaim. The first victories had drawn even the hesitant into the ranks of the enthusiastic Jewish rebels led by the sons of Matisyahu. Farmers had forsaken their land, merchants and tradesmen, their stores and their shops, and even Torah students had emerged from the four walls of the base Hamidrash from the yeshiva to join the fight against the oppressors. But the songs of victory, which had filled and reclaimed the holy temple with praise and gratitude for the merciful God, had ceased. The goal of the battle seemed reached. And Torah again was supreme law in Israel.
One man, though, realized that the time for a return to normal living had not yet come. Israel could not afford yet to relax. It would have to stand ready and prepare to carry on the fight against the overwhelming odds of the enemy. And that man was Yehuda Maccabi. His name was upon everybody's lips and in every Jewish heart. He was admired as a hero, as a man with the heart of a lion and the simple piety of a child, as the one whose mighty armies fought and conquered, yet who never failed to pray to God, the master of all battles, before he entered the fray. It was not the spirited warrior's joy that made Yehuda Maccabee stay in camp. His heart, too, longed to return to his former peaceful life, to Modi'in, the quiet town of priests which held the grave of his adored father. Bloodshed and battle meant a hard and unwanted profession for the men of, of Judea, who preferred peace to strife. Yet this was no time for relenting. Not only had he to stay, but with all the persuasion of his magnetic personality, he had to hold back his he had to, he had to hold back his comrades at arms. His own reasoning and his two wise brothers Shimon and Yonatan told him that only the first phase of the war of liberation had passed. Hard and desperate times were yet to come. Clever enemies merely needed to an extended lull to prepare new assaults with more troops and better equipment. And there were enemies all about Judea, besides the defeated Syrians. The neighboring countries begrudged the dazzling victories of the small Jewish armies. They would much rather have seen the people of Judea oppressed and humiliated than armed and spirited, a threat to their own lands. Whence had come the sudden source of strength, courage and fortitude? What was there in this nation that made history in proud seclusion and isolation from other nations? Old hatred was revived. The descendants of Edom, the Edomians, the Ammonites, the Philistines, and the Phoenicians all revived their ancient jealousies. Messengers arrived from Gilead. The pagan people joined forces to destroy Judea. From Galilee came the bad news of similar evil intentions and active preparations in Ptolemais, Tyre, and Sidon. The messengers found Yehuda Maccabee already at work. Fortifications had to be thrown up around Zion. Towers, walls, battlements, and a moat had to be constructed opposite the fort, still held by the worst enemies, the Hellenistic Jews, under the leadership of the false priest Menelaus. These hated everything Jewish and lived in the hope of the return of the Syrian masters. Yehuda Maccabee prepared Jerusalem against them and against imminent, the imminent assault by the troops of Antiochus. Under his supervision, the Jewish people worked feverishly to refill their arsenals and to turn the whole country into a stronghold. Once this most important task was accomplished, Yehuda Maccabee led his freshly trained troops to the aid of the regions and villages harassed by the spiteful neighbors of Judea. He drove the Udumians from Hebron, which they had annexed, and he punished the people who had acted with hostility towards the Jewish settlers. Then he led his army across the Jordan River against the Ammonites. The capital fell before the furious onslaught of the Jewish troops, and so did their fortress, which was known as Yaaser. <clears throat> Yehuda's brother Shimon led an army north to the aid of the plagued Jews of Galilee. He defeated the army and cleared the Jewish land. At his urging, a great many of the Jewish settlers who had fled to Jerusalem returned to rebuild in safety what had been destroyed during the years of weakness. Yehuda Maccabee and Yonatan joined forces and marched against Gilead, where they were met with the toughest resistance. By Shavuot, this campaign was successfully concluded. Judea was again free. 
and all parts captured by the neighboring nation had been recovered. Celebrations and festivity transformed Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, and the Holy Temple hardly half a year after the victories over the Syrian armies. The Jewish people expressed their joy and gratitude to God in the form of psalms and offerings, for he had restored glory and liberty to the Jewish land. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Come visit Pick and Pay in Hyper Norwood for amazing deals. 101.9. Sorry, 6th of December till 21st of December 2017. Pick and Pay 2 liter sunflower oil was 41.99 now, 32 rand each. Pick and Pay 2.5 kilos white sugar was 35.99 each now, only 29.99. Pepsi Cola 2 liter regular or light was 13.99 now, 11.99 each. Sally Williams macadamia or almond nougat 150 gram was 62.99 now only 42.99 each. Pick and Pay 2 kilograms washed potatoes now nineteen ninety nine each. Pick and pay two kilo onions now nineteen nine nineteen ninety nine each. Um I think it's A V Ev Pure Hake Fish Fingers four hundred grams now thirty nine ninety nine each. No name KFP shredded tuna, 170 gram was 15.99 now, only 12 rand. Visit Pick and Pay Hyper Norwood Perishables Department for for more amazing Hanukkah specials on our fry products. Back to the story of Hanukkah and what we have to do and what we have to have in mind, um, perhaps as we are getting close to that beautiful Chag, to the beautiful festival of Hanukkah, as we mentioned, beginning next Tuesday night. Well, first of all, from Tuesday evening, one needs to light the menorah. So that means you need to have a menorah. Please, if you're going away on holiday, make sure you've got something that you can light as a menorah before you go. Of course, we can use um, olive oil or oil or candles wherever we actually are. That's uh, not a problem. They don't have to be um, the ones that are specifically packed in the boxes that (coughs) say on them Hanukkah candles. But of course, it's very beautiful to light a real uh, Hanukkah menorah. Um, so we should try and make sure, if possible, that we do that. So we need to prepare for Hanukkah Tuesday evening. This coming Tuesday evening, I know that there is a lot on people's minds with having to pack and go away on holiday and do all sorts of wonderful things. Um, hopefully, for those lucky enough to be able to get away, please don't forget that Hanukkah begins on Tuesday evening. On Tuesday evening. We begin the lighting of the menorah. The candle lighting should take place um, shortly before it gets dark and it should um, run into, it should go into the night. In other words, the menorah should burn um, into the evening. So the best time for lighting the Hanukkah candles at the moment is probably um, in the region of quarter to seven in the evening. And um, that will be for the duration of the festival of Hanukkah. If you haven't lit by them, you can certainly light later. It's not like Shabbat candles where there is a cutoff time after which one may not. We need to make sure that we light every evening. And of course, we light in the way that we call halachically, Jewishly, it's called Mahadrin Min HaMahadrin. We light it in the best possible fashion. And what is the best possible fashion? Well, the best possible fashion is that on the first night, we light in addition to the Shamus, which is the user candle, the candle that we use to light the other candles, and is then placed on a different level in the menorah, um, that we actually begin to light 
a the candles in the following way. And that is on the first night we light one, in the second night we light two, third night three, and so on until on the eighth night we light eight candles. Now we know of course that this was an age-old argument that traditionally took place between um, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. There were those who said that the candles need to be lit in the opposite order. In other words, beginning with eight and going all the way down to one. We've discussed it before um, here on this program. And, of course, the simple um, answer to that question is that they would both be right. But we go according to Beit Hillel, which is, has got with it the practicality and the beautiful message of the fact that there is an increase. Each night of Hanukkah, we are increasing in the light. We are adding to the light. We are um, not, God forbid, diminishing in any way, but in memory of and in deference to and to celebrate the miracle that we read about before of um, the menorah being rekindled, of the fact that the Jewish people had halachically the option to be able to use any oil um, to have lit in that menorah. They had already reconstructed the menorah, as we heard. They could have used any oil, but they went out of their way to make sure that they found the beautiful, perfect olive oil bearing the seal of the Kohen Godel, and that was the only one that they were prepared to use. So they did something that was beyond the ordinary. They had this absolute dedication to doing things in the best possible fashion. They weren't prepared to settle for second best, and it was God's response, perhaps, to that that was really the great miracle of Hanukkah. We certainly, as a Jewish people, and our ancestors, the Maccabees, and Yehuda Maccabee at the helm of it all, uh, gave us that example of how we need to stick to our spiritual um, principles, not diminish in anything in any way, and make sure that we are uh, doing things in the best possible fashion rather than finding the loopholes and the ways around everything. And this is the response that God Almighty that Hashem showed us by giving us the miracles um, of uh, the Hanukkah triumph of the oil burning for those eight days until fresh oil was sourced, as we heard before. And therefore, it is something that we have adopted. Um, and when I say we, I'm talking about the Jewish people in practice over the last couple of thousand years, that we light our Hanukkah, our Hanukkah candles, our menorah in that fashion. One candle on the first night, two on the second, three on the third, until on the last night we have lit all eight. We begin lighting as is traditional. We always do. We do everything from the right. So we begin placing our first candle on the right-hand side. If you're standing in front of your menorah, you're facing it. You begin by inserting your first candle on the right-hand extreme uh, right of the Menorah, and then we add a new candle each night to the left of that, and we will always light the new one first. So you will go on the second night, two, one. On the third night, you'll go three, two, one, and so on in the way that you have positioned the candles on your Hanukkah menorah, on your menorah, in, on your candelabra. It should be in a place where it's visible. Now, the visibility of it in uh, many places around the world, and particularly if we were to think about the beautiful city of Yerushalayim, where I was privileged to be a number of years ago on Hanukkah, you see the menorahs, you see candles lit um, on doorsteps, you see candles lit 
in front of uh, the house facing the street. It is the most magnificent and beautiful site. Of course, we live in a country where, unfortunately, we have walls and gardens and so on, and uh, that may not be available to us. The best, then, is to put it in the most visible place in the house, in the home, and preferably in a doorway because that's what uh, the Jewish law halacha actually tells us. It should be in a doorway. It should be in a place, a doorway, where people pass by. And similar, I guess, to the idea of a mezuzah, where it's in the doorway and it's a sign for the inside and the outside, a protection for the inside and the outside of the home. So the menorah standing in the doorway um, is um, of a similar value that everybody walking in and out of the home, out of the house, can actually see the menorah. Um, it should be opposite the mezuzah, not on the same side as the mezuzah. If there is one on the door, we put the mezuzah on, we put the menorah on the other side, and that is where we actually light our candles. Uh, for Hanukkah if possible. Um, of course, the uh, doorway may also not be that practical. If you go through uh, the storms that we've been having lately here in Joburg, um, your candles might get blown out. One is um, permitted to put it into a doorway inside the house, so sort of leading from your lounge to your dining room or from your entrance hall to your lounge or uh, dining room or whatever in that kind of a position as long as it is visible. And, of course, then the entire family needs to be present for each night of uh, the Hanukkah candle lightings. I would like to just uh, finally inform you of the fact that there is going to be and there are going to be several menorah, grand menorah lightings around town. But let me draw your attention to one that you can diarize now for um, the Sunday in the middle of Hanukkah, that is the 17th grand menorah lighting that is going to be taking place with um, children's activities and uh, jumping castles and so on, all outside of Santon City's main entrance on Ravonia Road. Um, right there, huge menorah that is being erected already from this coming Sunday, but the following Sunday will be the big event that will take place there. Of course, the menorah will be lit there every night of Hanukkah, as well as in places like Norwood Mall, Kosher World, and so on. So please make sure that you avail yourselves of those opportunities. But remember, those are fun public lightings. The menorah needs to be lit by you, by your family, um, at home, in your own um, beautiful place at home, where you're going to light up the nights and you're going to make Hanukkah very, very special this year as well. I want to wish you a great rest of the week, a great um, good yom tif for tonight and tomorrow, as we heard Yutet Kislev. And a great uplifting and light and beautiful Hanukkah for the coming week. We'll be back to talk to you a little bit more about Hanukkah next week, same time, same place, on Judaism 101.9.